Well, this morning we're in uh, John 3.16, and we're going to be there. And as I've been thinking about John 3.16 this past week, I was just reminded about the nature of the way that the Bible commands us to come and approach God on the very first pages of Scripture. I mean, if you think about it, uh, it is a, a unique kind of blend of humiliation and, and exaltation that the Bible demands that we actually use as a lens through which we view ourselves and everything else. And it begins on the very first pages of the Bible. Think about it, Genesis 1. God created you as a human in the image of God and after his likeness. That is pretty exalted language, I would say. You have been made to look like God. Uh, Genesis 2, and he made you from the dirt. That's pretty humble. I mean, think about that. The, the, the message of creation is this. There was dirt, and God took that dirt, and he worked it, and he fashioned it such that you who were once dirt are now a human. And then out of that first man made from dirt, he created woman. And not only is it startling, this humiliation and exaltation that come together in the pages of Scripture, that come to give us a picture of who we are, he says, in that creation, he also made you with a propensity to love. Have you thought about that? You who were once dirt now are a person created in the image and after the likeness of God, and you can love another creature that was once dirt that has been created and fashioned in the likeness of God. That's amazing if we really think about it. The kind of juxtaposition of, of humiliation and exaltation that come together to describe the way that we as humans were made to love one another that resounds to the glory of God. And add to that that God fashioned us with this propensity of love, not just for God as our creator, but even other creatures formed and fashioned so beautifully and wonderfully that we are constantly tempted even to worship that which was once dust, the very stuff that snakes have been cursed to eat for the rest of their days. The wisest of men. With Solomonic wisdom in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, says there are four things that blow my mind. And you know what one of those are? The love of a man for a woman. Did you know that 90% of our pop songs in culture, pop culture, focus on love? Some kind of love, but love. In fact, one modern philosopher, Taylor Swift, spoke of one encounter with a potential love interest one encounter, one moment in time with a potential love interest. And she wrote this, I'm wonderstruck, blushing all the way home. I'll spend forever wondering if you knew I was enchanted to meet you. One look, one encounter, and she can imagine herself thinking forever about it. Or what about John Legend, another philosopher who says, you're my beginning and my end to his love interest. Uh, not exactly what I would consider the Bible to mean by Alpha and Omega, but, but he has this kind of idea in his heart. See, the love between people often keeps us so busy that we fail to consider the love to which those loves point, the love of God. Now, I'm not arguing that humans shouldn't be profoundly amazed by our fascination with love, but I want to argue this morning that God created us to be enchanted, dumbfounded, and even struck by a more profound love than any of us can even begin to grasp. 
hear me, we cannot even begin to grasp individually or collectively from now or forevermore the infinite love of God for which we were created. If you were to take all of us together and we were to spend all of our days contemplating the love of God that has been shared with us, we would never even begin to get to a a bit or a small point, a thimble's worth of what it means to understand the ocean of the love of God. Now we're kicking off our Trinitarian Christmas series this morning where we're going to be considering how each of the three persons of our generous triune God are revealed as participating in giving the greatest gift in all of creation, a good thing to be thinking about during the Christmas season. Now we're going to begin this morning in John 3, 16 to 21, where we're going to see that the Father's love propelled him to send his Son to the cradle and the cross to save sinners. That's our big idea if you're writing it down. It's the Father's love that propelled him to send his Son to the cradle and the cross to save sinners. Now I need to do some legwork to put our text in context this morning because there are so many misconceptions about the nature of love and what it means for God to send his son to the cross today. Uh, In fact, uh, in 2004, Steve Chalk called God sending his son to the cradle to go to the cross to die for our sins cosmic child abuse. He said it was incompatible with the God who is love. In fact, he says that the Bible never defines God as anything other than love. Now we're gonna get to that, But for him, the cross simply displays the principle of turning the other cheek, not Jesus dying as a sin substitute for you and me. So what is God sending his son to die for sins? Is it cosmic child abuse or the greatest love story ever told? That's what we're going to be thinking about. But we've got to set it up in John 1 to 315. That's right, John chapter 1 to verse 315 before we can jump to our text. I'll try to fly through this, but before I do, I'm gonna ask for the Lord's help because I need it. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we are asking that you would help our hearts to begin to grasp your love for us. And Father, we ask that you would do that through the means that you've given us, your very word. Father, we ask that your spirit would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the wondrous things of you that have been spoken. Lord, do this for the glory of your name, we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see here this morning is this. The cross was the reason for the cradle. The cross was a reason for the cradle. Now, we'll see this in John 1 to 3.15. You'll, you'll remember that John, John is that disciple that Jesus loved. He was on the inner circle of the disciples. He had a front row seat to many of those special miracles of Jesus, like the transfiguration. He was the first to see the empty tomb. Uh, He is the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, and this gospel that we are looking at this morning. Now, his main point in the gospel of John, I believe, comes in John 20, 31. There he tells us that he wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he wants, he writes this gospel that we may believe, and I hope that there are some here, perhaps, that have not heard of the name of Jesus Christ, have not really understood it, even if they've heard about it, that today, that they would be raised to newness of life. I think that purpose is still in effect. But here, notice first, that the eternal Son of God took on flesh in verses, in chapter 1, 1 to 3. John 1, 1 to 3. 
These verses are actually pointing back to Genesis. Uh, Notice here, John picks up that language in John 1, and he says, in the beginning was the word. Now, the beginning should be throwing us back to the beginning when God created all things by the power of his word. And here he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and there was nothing that was made without this word. And through this word, everything was made. Now, did you catch that? The eternal logos, this word of God, existed with God in the beginning and created all things with the Father. Way before he took on flesh, way before the cradle or the cross, way before Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, the eternal son of God, created all things. If you're thinking about Jesus and whether or not he is a normal human being, I don't know many other humans who have made the claim that they are the one through whom all things were created. If anyone else says that, you probably need to like get them some help. But this man says, I am the God man. I am unique and distinct from all other men. And then in John 1:14, John says this, the word, that eternal word through whom all things were created, he actually became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. But what was it like between the Father and the Son, between creation, before he created all things, and when he did create all things, what was the Father doing with the Son? Well, he tells us in John 17, 24, before anything was created, he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The eternal son enjoying the eternal and infinite love of the eternal father from eternity's past to now for forevermore. They were in this perfect, felicitous, loving relationship, needy for nothing. So before the eternal son of God took on flesh, he lived in perfect love with the father, with an absolute harmony and unity of wills and attributes, both infinitely and eternally. Now, I don't know how good your marriage is. Maybe some of you would say, man, me and my wife, we have never had a fight. Anybody like that today? Okay, let's just talk about like the most beautiful relationship in the world. I'm not trying to get you guys in trouble today. But that relationship where things just work well, do you know that best relationship pales in comparison to the kind of love that the Father and the Son experienced from before all time? Never disharmony, never a disagreement about wills. When the Son comes, he comes to delightfully do the same thing the Father was to do because they are fully one. The Father is the most loving Father ever. There's none loving like the Father in heaven. But catch this. In Jesus, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit overshadowed, when it overshadowed Mary. He was pleased to dwell with us. God-man came and dwelt amongst us so that the incomprehensible God might in some way become comprehensible for us. Now, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I've been preaching, teaching in some form for about 20 years. And can I just tell you that this reality, this weekend, the more that I meditate on it, I am more confounded and perplexed by it today. It causes more worship in my heart today than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. The the nature 
the awe-inspiring greatness of this God who came to take on flesh before us. Why would God give this son when he needs nothing from us? And I would love to linger here, but we've got to keep moving. Notice second also here in 3, 1 to 5, that Jesus tells a Pharisee that he needs the cross for the new birth. That's where Jesus is going. You need the cross for the new birth, and you need the new birth. See, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus, is coming to Jesus in the middle of the night in John chapter 3. And he pursues him, telling him, I I know that you're a rabbi. I have heard of your miracles, and I know that nobody can do what you do unless you are from God. So you're a, a teacher from God. And Jesus tells Nick, here's what you need to know. You cannot see and you cannot even enter the kingdom of God that you're so curious about. You can't even see it or enter it unless you have been born again. To which Nicodemus says, say what? Like, well, I'm sorry, I'm curious. Are you telling me that I need to like climb back into my mother's womb? Like that's kind of a gross image when you think about it, right? Pretty startling. The Bible's kind of fun that way. And Nicodemus says, I don't get it. How am I supposed to do that, re-enter my mom's womb? And it's interesting that Jesus says at that moment, when Nick is thinking Jesus sounds crazy, Jesus is saying back to him, man, I guess you just don't understand your Bible. Because he says, aren't you a teacher of Israel and, and don't you understand? If you understood your Bible, you would understand what I'm talking about. See, if Nick doesn't get it, I just want you to feel the weight of this. A Bible scholar like Nick, if he doesn't get this left to himself, then what hope is there for the rest of humanity? If Nick's in the dark, we're all in the dark. He he knew God. He was a holy man. He was a man who, who was eager to understand how to enter the kingdom of God. He had all the Bible training. And yet, here in this moment, he he doesn't see it, he doesn't understand. Jesus says, You've got to be born again. So in verses 14 to 15, he points to Numbers 21 to give him an explanation of what he really needs to be able to have this new birth so that he can see and enter the kingdom of God. After God saved Israel out of Egypt, he uses this image in verses 14 to 15 of of Numbers 21 where God has saved Israel out of Egypt. And you'll remember that as the people were wandering in the desert, they were disobedient and they often complained and grumbled against God. God hated gossiping, he hated grumbling, so much so that he sent fiery snakes amongst them. And some of those fiery snakes bit people and they died. Many of them died. And so God, after the people of God cried out, told Moses to take a pole and make it and put a fiery serpent on it and have it hanging from it. And he said that those who are bit by this serpent, have them look up and they will be healed and they were healed. Now much could be said here. I'm going to practice a little restraint. But for now, Jesus says that Jesus too must go down before being raised up just like that serpent so that those who are sin bit might see and believe and live. See, not just descending from heaven. That's not what he's talking about. There's a lot of that in John. That's not the only way he goes down. He has to descend actually to the grave. 
So he was sent down and then sent to the grave, and that must happen before he can be lifted up in the resurrection, and then finally the ascension back to heaven. And all of this is so that those who have been bit by the curse of the snake might be healed and live eternally. Now here's why I spent all of the time on that context. Notice that our text begins with the word for in verse 16. For. Now I take that for to actually be the Apostle John's explanation of the reality that culminates in our text this morning. In verses 4 to 15, he is pointing back to those verses about Jesus needing to be raised from the dead in the, the cross and the resurrection. And he is here, I think, in our verses this morning, verses uh, 16 to 21, explaining his thoughts. He is responding to his meditation on that story. This is what we're going to be thinking about this morning, John's commentary on Jesus' conversation with Nick. And did you catch that John makes a beeline from the necessity of the cross and the resurrection straight from the lips of Jesus to the reality and beauty and majesty of the incarnation. That's the cradle. The, the, the cross takes him back to that cradle, to the incarnation, to think about the generosity of God. Now don't miss this. The cross causes John to explode with a commentary on the love of the Father on display in his giving of the Son. Do you see it? D.A. Carson notes that one reason that we see that this is John's commentary, I know that it's read in some of the ESV Bibles, um, Jesus did not ask them to do that, okay? Uh, humans gave red so that we could sort of set aside what we think Jesus says, but catch this, you don't just obey the red words in the Bible either. I just want to be clear about that. Whether it's red or black, you obey it, right? It's God's word. But here we believe this is John's words, and, and this is one reason. The one and only, the way that he has spoken of, the only son, that is a, a term that we see John using throughout in his writing. And so here it seems that John is speaking of the only son of God. So he's meditating on him. See, John's meditation on Jesus needing to go to the cross casts his attention to the love of the Father on display and giving his son in the incarnation. The Father's plan before the foundation of the world was to send the Son to the cradle so that he might later go to the cross to save sinners. That's why he came. Second, our actual text this morning, God's love propelled his giving of his Son for the world. It was God's love that propelled his giving of his Son for the world. We see this in verses 16 to 17. Look there with me in your copy of God's Word. This is what he says. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now here you'll notice he's speaking of the Father as God. And he says, the Father so loved the world. Now I know in the ESV notes, some of you might see that it that perhaps says something like, this so actually means that God didn't so much love the world, 
speaking of the degree to which he loved them, but instead that he loved them in this way. Um, I'm not going to go through explanations of why. I think it's more reasonable that the traditional rendering is right, that he loves them so much so, the world so much so, that he gave his only son. And if it's If you disagree with that, well, then you have to look at the gift itself, the Son, which says he must have loved us so much if he would have given us him. Now, this would have sounded strange to Nick. And it should should sound strange to all of us if we read through the Gospel of John because of the way that that John uses the word world throughout. Did you know that John, he uses the word world around 60 times in his Gospel? And he uses it, seems, I, I read one commentator who said that he uses it in 10 different ways. So whenever you use world, you have to kind of unpack what is it that he's saying here about the world? What does it mean here in this context? I know that some Calvinists like John Owen have read world here as something like the elect world. Because it is is mind-boggling to think that God would love the whole world. and, And that within the world we have those who do not believe in Christ or are not Christians or believers. Or that it was a sinful world that would compel the love of God. And you'll notice in context that Jesus has been talking to Nick, a a Jew of Jews, who sometimes, who is here come in the light of darkness, believing that God loved Israel. Now can you imagine how startling Jesus' announcement that God loved the world, including non-Jews, would have sounded to him? Non-Jews will be saved too. So they take this to mean, those that take it this way, Something like God loves the whole world without distinction, but not without exception. See, God's not a universalist. I think they're right there. He doesn't save everyone. We'll see that. But catch this. If we read what John has to say about the whole world elsewhere, this unique statement of God's love ought to be even more startling. I do think that it includes both Jews and Gentiles alike, but I think he's saying more. In fact, Tom Schreiner studied all of the uses of the word world in the book of John. And what he said was that he usually uses it to speak of the people of the world. The people of the world in doing so, highlighting their subjection to evil. In other words, he has people in mind, but also people who are in a kind of subjection to evil. They are under the dominion of the one who is evil. So in John 1 29, you'll remember that John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And notice here in verse 17, that God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Well, why did he have to save it? Well, because it needs saving. Save from what though? Perishing in verse 16. In verse 18, we'll go on to say condemnation. Now, Look there, what he says in verse 18. He says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now that word for condemned that's being used there is speaking broadly of the nature of the world. Who he says is already condemned and under condemnation. Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, that word from, for, for condemned here is actually a, a court language. It's like a verdict that's been handed down. You've been judged guilty. You are awaiting your sentence. And what is the sentence? It is that you are going to perish in verse 16. Perishing. That's the eternal just wrath of God for a sinful world in rebellion against its creator. 
So notice in verse 19, the world that is condemned, John says, that is everyone's default setting. We are all condemned. There is no exclusion clause here. Everyone is condemned who is a part of this world. Notice verse 19 says that the world is condemned. And John says that includes everyone. It is the default setting. Do you know what I mean by default setting? Uh, We bought these fans for our house, put them up in our ceilings. Um, There's one in Ben's room. There's one in our room. And it has, uh, both of them have these changers. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, And so uh, sometimes we'll turn on, like, turn off the lights uh, in the middle of the night. And uh, somewhere around two, Ben will come in. and He's like, hey, the lights are on in my room. Why? Well, because it's got the same like remote code, but apparently when we turn off ours off, his come on. And he wakes up somewhere in the middle of the night and he's like, oh man, dad, what just happened? I'm like, I'm sorry, I I flipped on the lights and I knew it would probably turn yours on, but I didn't really think about it or care about it enough to come and turn them off. Um, So if you know how to fix that, you can tell me later, but that's the default setting on that remote, right? Causes a lot of pain, doesn't work right. Doesn't work the way that we want it to. And that's kind of the way that we work. Our default setting is that we are living under condemnation. We are guilty. In other words, I I don't take the world here as referring to the elect world, uh, but the totality of fallen humanity. Now, in the difficult doctrine of the love of God, Don Carson says, world in John does not so much refer to the bigness as much as the badness. See, God's love in sending the Lord Jesus is to be admired, admired, Not because it is extended to so big a thing as the world, but so bad a thing. Not to so many people. It's to such a a wicked people. On the axis, God's love for the world cannot be collapsed into his love for the elect. And I would say, yes, true, God loved the sinful people. But even more startling for the Jew is the reality that Jews are part of something so sinful. Do you see it? Like, Nick's in the group with the world of people who are fallen humanity. He, too, is far from being, he is below, in need of the one who is coming from above, the Savior of the world, who will save even Samaritans in John 4, the very next chapter. So John, John knew that really good Jews, like Nick, were part of a sinful world, alienated from God. Don't miss this. The gospel requires more humility than simply understanding that we were created out of the dust with a propensity to love. God says that we all, like King David, have in Psalm 151.5 says, were brought forth in iniquity. David says in Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's the context? Him being caught in sin. Great sin, a list of sins. And when he is caught and he tries to trace back the trail, he says, I was born in sin. See, we stand condemned, guilty, and sentenced before God. God didn't love us because we were lovely. That is not the message of the gospel. Nick had Jewish DNA and an awesome resume. And and what we find here is that it was not enough to please God. He thought a good teacher could get him to God. Is that you? Do you think that you're basically good and just need a good rabbi to get you home? Maybe that's the way that you talk around others. You're you're a pretty good person, right? You're a pretty good person, and you added Jesus, and things have gotten a little bit better. Well, don't miss this. Nick and you and me, we don't need a good rabbi. 
Good people just need a good teacher. But sinners need more than a rabbi. We need the savior of the world. And John marvels that Nick doesn't see the desperation of a situation. But don't miss this. The darkness of the world is meant to highlight the love of God here. Do you see it yet? These verses tell the most startling love story ever told. The the God, the story of God here, it isn't a story about God's love for the lovely. That's not the gospel. I think a lot of us think of ourselves kind of like Cinderella, who we were just waiting for the prince to come and kiss us so that the world could see how beautiful we really are. We're the stepsisters and the stepmom. That's who God came for, the unlovely. See, God sent his son for for us. God came to us on our worst day. Can can you believe that? Like, I just love on my worst day when the Lord, by his grace, just strikes me with a remembrance that God loved me even on this day. How? See, when we diminish our sin and begin to put forth our best show and say that that's what God loved, we diminish the love of God. Just think about it. According to this text, elect and non-elect all sit under God's condemnation right now outside of Christ. If you don't believe, we are guilty before God. That's where God loved us. He, He came into this thing that is so gross and full of sin, and he loved us. But don't miss this. The darkness of this world is meant to highlight the love of God here. Do do you see it? It is here that he is showing us the beauty of the love of God. See, if we don't believe that we are guilty before God, we'll only begin to understand the greatness of God and his love when we begin to understand the grossness of our sin. That's where God loved us. And the only person who will understand and appreciate a love story like this is a sinner. It's the only one who will love a God like this. If you understand that you are a sinner coming before a holy God who loved you. But notice also here in 16 that it was love that propelled God the Father to give his son to save that world. Do do you see it? Like now that you see the world and, and all that it is and its sinfulness, it isn't it spellbounding that God would come and love that. But if you have received a, a gift that you didn't need, When I was in middle school, I got a bottle of cologne that doubled as bug repellent and human repellent. Now, I love cologne. I I liked cologne that smelt good. And good gift givers, I think, demonstrate a knowledge of the things that you like. But even more than that, they're generous in it. They they understand why you like what you like. They don't give gross-smelling cologne. Good Good gift givers demonstrate love by considering what you need and making you feel known. Costly gifts communicate love as well. So considerate, costly gifts make good gifts. And the largesse of God's gift can be seen in its costliness and its considering what we truly need. Take note, here the lover of our souls loved us so much that he gave us the best gift ever in the incarnation. His son with whom he shared infinite and eternal love. Nothing more costly than that. See, the father sent the son not to judge us, but to save us. Love that John just focused on that. He didn't come primarily, enter the world for judgment, for salvation. Judgment's already happened in this text. We're all guilty. Sentence has already been been passed out. We're perishing. But why would God so love us? 
Well, you'll remember in 1 John 4, 8 that we're told that God is love. And here John says, love for the world propelled the Father to send the Son. I think this could create a serious misunderstanding. If you think that God is love, means that love is God. You hanging with me? There's a difference. There's a difference between God is love and love is God. See, Steve Chalk, when he calls the idea of Christ dying on a cross in a place of sinners to absorb the wrath of God for a fallen humanity, cosmic child abuse, it's because he equates God is love with love is God. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of God himself. See, God is pure love, but he is not mere love. Did you hear that distinction? Very important. It is a subtle but critical distinction. God is pure love, but he is not mere love. I I love what Augustine wrote. I've been thinking much about the greatness, the largesse of God and his goodness to us, and and also his his divine nature. And Augustine wrote this. He said, to attain some slight knowledge of God, even his love, is a great blessing. To comprehend him, however, is totally impossible. I've been reading recently Dutch reformer Hermann Bevink's Reform Dogmatics, Volume 2. He wrote in the 1800s, and he said this, Even in the Reformers, the significance of God's incomprehensibility was increasingly lost from view. During the Reformation, we we began to lose a sense of the incomprehensibility of God. Now, there are others who don't miss this still today. Muslims, liberals, Brahmins, every other religion has moved towards the unknowability of an infinite God, which leaves us to create religion for ourselves. They at least acknowledge how incomprehensible and great God is. But the answer to knowing God truly isn't to downplay the awe that we have over the incomprehensibility of God. His greatness, but to increase our white-knuckled grip on the holy, just, good, merciful, and here, loving God who has revealed himself to us in his word. That great God has stooped down and spoken to us. He has spoken to us here. And what message would you expect to hear from the incomprehensible God if he were to come and stoop and speak to you today? Here the word is, God so loved the world that he gave his son. See, the temptation for us as finite beings seeking to to grasp a hold of or comprehend an incomprehensible God is to latch on to the aspect of God's character that's easiest for us to understand or accept or the one that we just like most, right? And maybe it's just the one that you like most in the moment. Like your kid, like when he's impatient, like I love that God's patient right now and that you need to be patient. It works for me. I don't always like patience so much when it's me and I'm supposed to wait on a new car or my roof to get fixed or the in and out line. But the more that we start to understand the vastness of God, the more desperately and humbly we will listen to his voice in the word. You see it? If you really understand how incomprehensible God is, how infinite he is, you will be amazed, spellbound, by the fact that he has given us his word and spoken to us in intelligible ways so that we might grasp him. Bible's awesome. 
That's the beauty of what John is communicating here. We can know the holy God of the Bible who is also holy loving. God is not only good and just, he is love and love propelled him to send his son. The incomprehensibility of God grows as we grasp the simplicity of his attributes like love and justice, those attributes that he has stooped down to reveal to us that we might know him. But catch this. God loves all sinners in at least one way, but he doesn't love all sinners in every way. If we read the Bible and we begin to understand love, not coming from Taylor Swift first, right? But coming from the Bible, not like looking to John Legend for who our Alpha and Omega should be, but looking to the Bible, then we will start to get a more God-centered understanding of what love ought to look like. And we find that God shows all kinds of different loves. And you know this in your life. You know, I, I love my wife Gia. I love my boys. I love my parents. I love pizza. Not necessarily any particular order, right? But like, I love all of these things. I don't love all of these things in the same way, right? It's the same way with God. God, he loves and he loves in different ways, In the difficult doctrine of the love of God, Carson lists a number of ways that God loves. There's that inner Trinitarian love, that's one. Or what about the way that God displays his love and his providential care for his creatures? That's another. Like he feeds ravens. A third way is that God yearns and warns and invites all human beings to repent and believe in his son. That's a love. He fourth, he loves Uh, in a special way, the elect that have come to him by faith. And and fifth, it's God's conditional love towards his covenant people in discipline. There's a kind of love there. See, this tells us a couple of things about God's love. It's that God's love is not flat, but it is fat. Does that make sense? God has a fat, a, a large love, but it's not a flat love. There's distinctions and, and, and beauties in the love of God. Catch this, it's it's not false to say that God loves non-Christians. If you're here this morning, we believe that there's a way in which God loves you. I think it's sad that some Christians chafe at the kind of of language that says that God loves non-Christians. Because God's love, as I said before, it's it's fat, not flat. We see evidences of his love and God's goodness to non-Christians all the time. There's a common grace where God shows all goodness and a kind of love, causing his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sending rain on the righteous and the unrighteous in Matthew 5, 45. God is a source of every blessing. There's no good that comes to anyone in the world that does not come from God, whether we know it or not. Your life, no matter how bad it is, is so much better than you deserve because God is good and because he's a loving God. But even more than that, every good gift comes from the Father. In fact, I found so many people who experience great success in this world dumbfound me by the fact that they don't pay attention to the goodness and love of God. Those things are meant to cast our, our vision and attention towards him. But friend, don't settle for God's common grace to a fallen world and miss out on his special grace for an eternal hope. God has a greater love that he has sent in his son. A greater love. See, not everyone can call God Father in the same way. And there's days that are coming when God's judgment will swiftly, with force, come with God's just wrath against sin. So don't refuse the love of God in Jesus. Don't refuse it. 
whosoever believes really will be saved. So don't reject God's love. We're not waiting on pins and needles with fingers crossed to see how the verdict turns out. We are guilty. We are chained. We are in need of grace. But notice third what we find here. Jesus here, John, tells us how we receive the Father's gift and escape condemnation. There's a response that we are to give to the love of God that's been on display. And we find that in verses 18 to 21. Now you'll notice in these verses, they speak of being in the world, but not of the world in a sense. He's speaking of of those who are in the world, and yet there are some who are escaping this condemnation. Verse 16 says there are two end-time destinies. You remember that? There are those who will perish, and there are those who will find eternal life. And here he says that journey begins today. So we see this teased out, speaking of those in light and darkness. Look with me again in 18 to 21. Here's what he says. He says this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, you'll notice two realities are possible for worldlings which turn on the response to God's gift of God's Son. Uh, first, you'll, know that there's a, you'll notice there's a guilty world here. Did you catch that whoever doesn't believe in the, sa- the name of the Son is already condemned in verse 18? Uh, and in verse 19, it says, these same people love darkness and they have evil works. In verse 20, they hate the light and even avoid it because they don't want their works to be exposed. See, these people love evil and hate good. They do what they love and they love the world. Is that you today? Are you living in darkness and do you love it? Well, here's the good news. Jesus is the light. But do you refuse to come to Christ because you love your sin? Or do you reject Jesus because you don't want to give up that that boyfriend who clearly doesn't love Christ? Or that relationship that isn't honoring Christ? Or you don't want to give up your freedom to do what you want to do with your time on the weekends and follow Christ? Or fill in the blank with what you want more, what you love more than Christ? Friend, you stand condemned where you are. You were hopeless except for one thing. Love propelled the Father to give his Son for you. Here's how you can escape the judgment to come. God's just eternal wrath on a world and rebellion against him. This is how you escape. You, like Nick, need to be born again. And the gift of Jesus is what makes the difference between perishing and eternal life. But notice also there's a, another way to live in this world that is not of this world. Because Jesus is the light of salvation. Notice in verse 19, John says the Father sent the light into the world. Again, that's Jesus. And the way that we respond to that light changes everything. The way that you respond to the light, it it changes everything. Catch verse 20. He says this, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Coming to the light means coming to Jesus. 1 John 3 says... This is God's commandment to us. What does it look like to be obedient to God? 
It means to come to the light by putting faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John 3 says that the law is summed up in this, that we believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, in the name of the Son of God, and that we love one another. That's what it looks like to obey God. So this person here who is responding to the light in such a way that they uh, escape the condemnation of God is someone who has put their faith in Christ. And catch that, unlike the selfish acts of those in darkness, those who come to Christ glory in their works. Did you catch that? Being carried out in God. They're, They're not gripping onto the darkness because they're scared of what they might lose. They are coming to God and not boasting in their grip or their ability to run, but in God who actually runs for them. Do you see it? It is God that gets the glory for me coming to Christ, to the light. The works there that is spoken of, where it says the works, what is true, would have been understood by Jews to mean an act that is faithful or living faithfully. And those who come to Christ will be faithful. They will not glory in their flesh. They will obey Jesus is Lord. They will obey him because they love God. And those who love God, according to 1 John, keep his commandments. See, they will glory in the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. In other words, God loving Christ will transform their lives today and on the last day and forevermore. Do you see that? Eternal life is something that has begun for these. They are those who have put their faith in Christ and are journeying in and towards eternal life. What good news. We're not perishing. We're on a journey that is about eternal life. Now, if you're a non-Christian, what that means for you is you need to be born again like Nick did, like all of us did, but you must believe in God's one-of-a-kind son, Jesus Christ, who entered the cradle to go to the cross. One of my favorite pastors, Charles Spurgeon, talked about what it looks like to have true saving faith. And if that's you today, you're wondering, what does it look like to have true saving faith? How can I know this love of God, this unique, beautiful, altogether glorious love of God that is distinct from every other love? And this is how. He said that you need three, three things if you want to have true saving faith. First, it includes a certain message. And the message is the message that we've been talking about. It's the message about the Son, who is the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh, who lived a perfectly obedient life, who died on the cross for your sins so that he might absorb the wrath of God that you deserved, that that you wanted, that you earned. And, And in place of that, return and give to you his righteous life accounted to your credit. So that when you come before God, he sees you through the lens of the righteousness of Christ rather than your sins. And he was raised from the dead to declare that if you put your faith in him, you too will live and defeat death with him. That's the message. And the response is that you turn from living for your sins. You repent and you put your faith in that gospel, living for him. That really includes two parts. One is turning away from living for this world, living for darkness. And then the other flip side of that is actually turning to Christ and living for him. It's really one motion that's the same motion. That's the the message. But it needs something else. It's not just cognitively knowing that. But it's second, it's a certain belief in this gospel. 
It's an understanding that I know these things are true. I've grown up with them maybe. Maybe I've just heard them for the first time. And I see that this is a true thing. But you need to believe that those things are true for you. That you need this gospel. That you are a sinner. That Christ died to save you because the love of God has been directed towards your soul. But there's a third thing you still need yet. It's not just believing that you need those things, that those things are true. But you need this thing that Puritans called recumbency. It's what I think is being described in this text here when it says that their works will be changed and shaped and faithful because they have seen the light and followed the light. The life is changed. Puritans use the word recumbency. If you don't know what the word recumbency is, um, any good football game will introduce you to it. It's okay, ladies, it's not a football, really a football illustration. It's a lazy boy illustration. Y'all know what an il- a lazy boy is? Those big leather chairs that you like to go and you like to lay in to watch a game. And uh, I don't know about you, but I usually start at one click. And then by the third quarter, I'm like at like four clicks. And by the fourth, I don't know where I'm at because I'm, I'm asleep, right? And, and when you lay in that recumbent chair, that's what a lazy boy is, you're actually leaning into it as it lays back, and you are trusting that it's going to hold you, right? That it's not going to fall out from under you, that it's not going to break, that it's not going to hurt you, but it's going to actually hold you and, and, and bring you comfort and safety, right? Well, it's the same way with Christ. When we really have faith that the gospel is true, that it's true for you, and that we really are going to give our lives to it, we lean into it with our very lives. Every decision that we make, every next decision is a decision that is shaped by our love for Jesus Christ. Every decision, your next faithful decision, is a decision that says, I am following light or darkness. And that shows you whether or not you truly have leaned in to Jesus Christ and whether or not you are continuing to lean into him. And that's why you need to have brothers and sisters in Christ around you to help you, encourage you, maybe rebuke you when you're not leaning into Christ in the way that we are called to lean into Christ. That's what it looks like to have true faith. So if that's you today, I'd love to talk to you after the service. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, I'd like to talk to you about what that looks like. I'd like to talk to you about the importance of becoming a part of the church so that we can walk alongside you and encourage you in your faith. But for now, I want us just to to pray. Go to, to the Lord in prayer. Our great Father who has displayed such love to us. Let's go in prayer to him. Will you pray with me?